Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome back to the podcast today one of the pods, not only a friend of the pod, a best friend of the pod, and that's Sam Unica. Uh, Sam is the author of States of Liberation Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. And he also did a uh, long series with us on queer Germany, the history of homosexuality uh, in Germany, and really much, much more than that. It's a run through. Uh, of German history. So if anyone's interested in that, you should definitely check it out. But we've invited Sam to the podcast today to talk about his recent um, book, A Queer Theory of the State. It's more of like a, a long essay than a book, which is something that I actually like really like. I think more books should be in the long essay form. Many things don't actually require a book. So this is, I think, a really good uh, entry into that genre. So Sam, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm glad <laughs> we'll you're not always sick have of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we'll have you back uh, always. So why don't we just start with the basic question? Because you actually opened the book with talking about COVID and why you decided to write this book. So, so why write a book on queer theory of the state? The easy or the simple answer to that is that it's really something I, I sort of wrote for myself to, to explain to myself, my own thinking about the relationship between queer theory and, and politics in the state. The sort of longer genealogy of this is that several years ago, I was reviewing a new intellectual biography of Michel Foucault um, titled The Last Man Takes LSD, which was sort of the, the main argument was that Foucault is sort of a closet neoliberal. And, you know, there's there is a there there to that argument. I don't fully agree with it, um, but it was an interesting book. And in that review, I pointed out that there isn't a queer theory of the state, that that's sort of a flaw in the at least the flavor of queer theory that comes primarily out of Foucault's talk. And that then spurred me to think about, well, if one were to try and construct a queer theory of the state, what might that look like? And so a couple of years ago, I published an earlier version of this volume with The Point, a sort of shorter essay, and then eventually decided there was enough there to sort of expand it into the little volume that has now been published. So essentially, though, the, the sort of big question I'm trying to answer here, or the, the point I'm trying to make, is first that there is no sort of existing queer theory of the state. That is to say, the intellectuals and activists who are sort of engaged in queer theory don't really know what to do with the state as an idea or a formation. And ultimately, I think that sort of hampers the ability of queer activism or queer politics to get things done, to think constructively about how to engage in politics, how to engage with state power, and then to try and offer some ideas of how we might envision a sort of queer theory of the state. 
So before we continue, um, everyone, we did the first episode of the Queer Germany series on um, queer theory. So if you want a primer on that, you should check it out. But for people who um, aren't going to do that, Sam, why don't you just describe briefly what is queer theory? You know, if right. people heard of it, they might have just heard of it and sort of right wing attacks against it. Yes. <laughs> so, so what precisely is it? And then why do you think there was a lack of focus on the state per se? Yeah, no, those are really good questions. So, you know, I guess I should first say that part of the reason I also wrote this was kind of as a primer of queer theory. Um, it's it's my own version of queer theory, right? If you ask 10 different queer theorists and queer historians what queer theory is, and you're going to get 10 different responses, slightly, you know, different variations. And so basically, in my telling and my view, Queer theory is a body of scholarship that is primarily interested in deconstructing norms around gender and sexuality. And so basically it says we aren't necessarily sort of purely free agents moving through the world doing what we want, but rather our lives are informed and hampered and constructed by these norms, by normative power. Um, And that those norms are sort of generated through interpersonal contexts, right? And so I behave in certain ways or don't behave in certain ways because I know that there's another person on the receiving end of that behavior and that they will have judgments and ideas about what is proper and what isn't, and I want to sort of fit into their idea of what is proper. Uh, And this very much comes out of the work of Michel Foucault, uh, who was really interested in interrogating how these norms are generated and perpetuated in sort of sites of everyday life, um, in particular sites like prisons, uh, clinics, uh, schools, very interested in how knowledge is constructed, not only as a sort of purely intellectual exercise, but it sort of has a disciplining function uh, on, on society, on individuals. And so Proof theory sort of evolves out of this. And it, again, it's particularly interested in gender and sexuality. In recent years, it's sort of also branched out to become interested in race and ability. Um, there is sort of a substrand of queer Marxism that's very interested in tying class to gender and sexuality. But at base, all of these different sort of branches of queer theory remain interested with normative power. That is this sort of what Foucault calls capillary functioning of power. And that means it's not interested in sort of hierarchical domination. It's not interested in rules and regulations and the sort of explicit violence of the state that is sort of backing up state power. It's much more interested in these everyday relations. And so the first problem with trying to construct a queer theory of the state is that there's a sort of lack of interest. If you're interested in these ordinary everyday interactions, in these sort of sites of ordinary power, you're less interested in how the state is sort of dominating um, people, how it's uh, oftentimes creating new norms through sort of laws and policies and regulations. The other problem, um, which has a lot more to do with queer history, is that the state has often been a sort of locus of violence against queer people. Uh, And so there's queer theorists sort of look at that and say, well, the state doesn't actually have anything to offer queer people other than violence. And so not only are we sort of uninterested in how the state functions, we also think that 
it fundamentally has an antagonistic relationship with us and what we're trying to accomplish. So, Sam, I think I'd like to note an irony, because in the last 20 years, so much of left-wing activism regarding queer people has focused literally on manipulating the state. Yes, yes. So could you explain that gap? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think this is where you get to the sort of peculiarity of queer theory and queer activism and how there's actually a really pretty big gap between what a lot of intellectuals are writing and what's actually going on politically. Um, well, good thing that's never happened before. <laughs> never, never. <laughs> certainly not on the left. Uh, so essentially, like the gay marriage debate is, I think, the best example of this, where obviously in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, marriage equality becomes the sort of signal premier issue for big gay sort of lobbying and activist organizations. And it's interesting because it's pushed more from the gay right rather than the sort of progressive activist left. Um, so people like Andrew Sullivan are very interested in pushing gay marriage because they think it will have a sort of domesticating function on queer people. It'll sort of sap um, gay and lesbian identity of its you know radical potential, which someone like Andrew Sullivan doesn't like. At the same time, you have lots of ordinary queer people, lots of politicians, lots of progressives even, who think that this is a good idea, that this is basically a fundamental right that is being withheld from gay men and lesbians for, you know, no good reason, and that we should grade it. And that is something that will make our society more equal, freer, so on and so forth. Um, but then you have the sort of activist left and queer theorists who were vehemently opposed to marriage equality. And the reason isn't that they think gay people shouldn't have rights. The reason is that they are much more interested or were much more interested in deconstructing marriage as an institution. And so they thought, first of all, by prioritizing marriage equality, it was sort of giving away the store. You were giving up on the argument that marriage is a fundamentally kind of Christian, patriarchal, unequal institution that should be done away with entirely. And they agreed with people like Andrew Sullivan in thinking that it would have this kind of domesticating effect. Um, and they worried that it would, in fact, sap you know, sort of queer activism or the potentiality for queer activism of its radical um, sort of potential to go out and change society, change change norms. So those are sort of the, the two reasons in that debate why there's this divergence between what queer intellectuals are writing and thinking and saying and where the kind of gay and lesbian mainstream is. I think in retrospect, it's clear that marriage equality was a pretty successful strategy in terms of getting um, at least gay men and lesbians uh, basic rights and recognition from the state. I think we're obviously living through a kind of backlash right now to a lot of that that's much more focused on trans people. So queer history is constantly evolving. It's hard to sort of know if it was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think you don't quite have the the radical domestication that people like Andrew Sullivan wanted and the radicals feared. Um, but it also hasn't been this sort of perfect balm to, to sort of solve all of our problems vis-a-vis -vis gender and sexuality. Um, but that then expands, I think, to a broader difference between queer intellectuals who have this very sort of skeptical deconstructionist view of policy in the state and so on, 
and much more pragmatic people who are working at organizations like the Human Rights Campaign, like GLAAD, um, any number of these sort of gay and act, uh, lesbian activist lobbying groups who do, at the end of the day, have a very pragmatic view. I'll also add, I think that there's a kind of disciplinary disjuncture between queer theorists who primarily come out of literature and also philosophy, who I think take a much more abstract and thus oftentimes more skeptical view of state power, and historians, queer historians, who take a much more empirical and thus, I think, less skeptical view of state power. And so you actually have a lot of, you know, prominent historians who write or co-author um, amicus briefs to the Supreme Court during the sort of uh, marriage equality decisions. Thanks, Sam. So, so that's a really useful primer on, on queer history and its relationship to the state. But obviously, there's been lots of theories of the state. So yes. maybe we could turn to the other side of the equation and talk about theories of the state that you find particularly compelling. There's Marxist theories of the state. There's liberal theories of the state. There's radical theories of the state. There's neoliberal theories of the state, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's especially interesting, and I, maybe I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, coming from a, a discipline that is not especially state-focused, um, that right. particularly when we uh, were intellectually trained, um, the state has never gone away. People have always studied the state. It's ridiculous to claim otherwise, but it was not the, the vanguard or the avant-garde of the profession, certainly. I would say, right. as I as I argued in a piece that I co-wrote with Fred Logoval, I think the era of globalization, um, which I think is informed by neoliberal imperatives, actually encouraged historians to downplay the importance of the state in world history, which to my mind, it's it's by far the most important institution of the last 200 years, and it's not yeah. even close, um, particularly when we're talking about foreign policy, which is my own subfield and was particularly ironic that there was a turn away from the state, but that's a story for another mm -hmm. time. Um, <laughs> so maybe you could comment on, on uh, w w what you think historians have done with the state, and then we could talk about various theories of the state. Yeah, I mean, so I do think there's been a turn back towards the state. I don't think that I'm sort of unique in this. Um, my first book, obviously, is very much a book about the state. It's a book about the state, the queer people in, in two different countries. Um, and I do think, when I think about the kind of projects that my cohort uh, was working on when I was in grad school, they were much more state-focused than perhaps a generation earlier. And I'm trying to think, as I think about books that have started coming out, certainly in German history, I think, in German history is its own kind of weird subfield, right? Because I think German historians have always been interested in the state and there wasn't maybe as much of a turn away from the state. Nazism will do uh, that. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. I mean, Nazism, communism, right? These We have these sort of like centralizing powerful states that are the, the focus of our field. But I do think there's been a turn back towards the state. I think within queer theory and queer history too, I'm not unique in doing this. Um, in particular, the work of Paisley Kara, who's a translegal theorist, uh, and who I draw on in this book, um, and who I find sort of really insightful, his work has done a lot to, I think, try and bring the state back into queer theory. And Margot Kennedy as well. Margot right? Kennedy, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so I do think that there's been a sort of turn back towards the state. And I think that has a lot to do probably with just the shifting winds of the historical profession. Also, probably the fact that we are 
you know, sort of at least haphazardly living through a kind of questioning of neoliberalism and of globalization. And all of a sudden, you know, we have a presidential race on us with two candidates who more or less, you know, sort of openly favor big government of one kind or another and and are much less reluctant about embracing the power of the state to enact their visions. Whereas, you know, it's very different from two decades ago where you essentially have right neoliberalism versus left neoliberalism contesting a presidential election. In terms of, I mean, we could have a whole series on theories of the state. Um, I think this is going to make me sound very old fashioned, but I think when my, like when I first think about how I think about the state, I am in some sense a Hegelian. Um, which is to say, I do think that the state is ultimately one of the greatest inventions in human history. The ability to sort of coordinate social action is, is a remarkable thing. And it has allowed humans to do horrifying things, but also quite remarkable things. Uh, and I certainly think empirically, as we confront the 21st century and in particular climate change, it's very difficult to see any way to coordinate the kind of response that's necessary without powerful states. And so I don't buy into Hegel's sort of, you know, uh, theodicy of the state, right? I don't see the state as a sort of replacement god in the same way that Hegel does. But I think that fundamentally human history, at least in the modern period, very much is this sort of building, slow dialectical building up of the state, um, and oftentimes in a kind of progressive direction. So that's sort of, I think, where I oftentimes start from. Um, another theorist from around the same time period who I find sort of inspiring is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, obviously, the idea of the general will has been a hugely influential idea, and there's sort of the theory that this leads to Stalinism and the terror and so on. I don't really sort of buy into that. I, I'm always a little skeptical when, you know, pure ideas are given that much agency of their own. But I do think the basic notion that governance ought to flow from the sort of sovereignty of the community is sort of a basic, it's a very basic idea about the state in the modern period. And I think it's fundamentally a useful and a good one. Um, you know, Rousseau then gets into all of these sort of weird mechanics about how you determine the general will. And, you know, there's the famous line, which I actually quote in the queer theory of the state about forcing people to be free. Um, and I, but I think, you know, so there are these elements of, of coercion, sort of wackiness in Foucault, but I think he also does get at the notion that at the end of the day, states will have to make decisions that are not universally popular. Um, but you sort of have in a democratic society, you sort of have to accept that that is, the general will. Sam, the actual, yeah. the way to determine the general will is to ask me. And then right, I tell right. you, and then we go from there. Right. I forgot so. about that. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's in one of the little known appendices to the social contract. Yeah, Nostradamus especially. Uh, sorry sorry to interrupt, yeah. but maybe maybe we should um, turn to some of the some other mm-hmm. theories of the state yeah. that, that are more recent, and then we could sure. go into neoliberal queers, the first chapter yes. of your book. Of course. Um, no, so I mean, more recently, obviously, like, you know, sort of the evergreen Marxist theories of the state are very important to me. I think 
you know, Marx, of course, and, and sort of Marx's successors do have this sort of weird relationship to the state where on the one hand, Marx sort of prophecies the withering way of the state under communism eventually. But in the meantime, we need a powerful state to, you know, redistribute wealth, to protect workers' rights, and so on and so forth. And so at the end of the day, Marxism frequently has, and then sort of, you know, Marxist political movements, philosophies have favored powerful states. Um, and so that's another sort of obvious area where I think I draw inspiration from. The problem with Marxism, of course, is that it frequently has, in many of its iterations, sort of taken class seriously, but to the detriment of other forms of marginalization that can't simply be reduced to class. And this is why you get, you know, feminist movements, queer movements, um, uh, sort of race-based movements that, you know, may have sympathy with the socialist left, but also diverge from it. And oftentimes are sort of cast out from those. I mean, the queer activists who I study in West Germany, many of them were committed socialists and saw what they were doing as part of the sort of socialist struggle, but the, the straight socialists didn't want anything to do with them. And so that's one of the sort of, I think, flaws in the sort of Marxist theory of the state. And that's also where queer theory really diverges and is quite skeptical of Marxism. Um, and so there's this historic kind of antagonism between queer intellectuals and Marxist intellectuals um, that in recent years, various people like Christopher Chidney um, and Petrus Liu have tried to, to resolve in their scholarship. I just want to, the other yeah. problem with Marxist theory is that you should all go back to China where your headquarters is, frankly. Yeah. You know, as our as our friend of the show, Nancy Pelosi, said. Just get back to China. Na Nancy needs to retire Pelosi. <laughs> We need, I think we need a geriatric theory of the state. Can you do a, get somebody to do a follow-up oh on this? Oh my God. Give us a little geriatric theory of the state. Um, why, why are all of our leaders in their 70s and 80s, they, they, why aren't they playing golf and bridge? That's what and I the, want to know. Of course, the best thing is that they're so much older than the Soviet leaders who were accused of being too old. It's so good. I love it. <laughs> I, I love know. this country. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's an entertaining country. You can't that is, deny it that. Is, it is, as as friend of the show, Matt Chrisman once said, and when we were talking about why we're fascinated by the United States, he's like, it, it's the most, <laughs> you know, it's it's a country that's the most. And that's certainly the case. So Sam, before we move on to the neoliberal yes. queers, are there any other theories of the state of which listeners should be aware? Oh God, I mean, so many. Um, I mean, a few other sort of more contemporary thinkers who I've drawn on for this book, include Pierre Rosanvalon, who's, you know, a French theorist, in particular of democracy. Um, and there's actually been a whole kind of um, almost like Tocquebellian turn to re-examining democracy and thinking of it not just in terms of kind of hollow institutions, but actually filled with content. And so that um, has been a quite meaningful uh, turn for me um, in, in sort of trying to conceptualize this book. Another theorist who's been really helpful for me is Bonnie Honig, uh, who, you know, has done a lot to sort of conceptualize in particular um, neoliberalism and democracy and the sort of um, imbalance between those two. So those are some of the more contemporary theorists who I've drawn on for this uh, for this book. Sam, let's get into the meat of the book. And your, you know, your first chapter is neoliberal queers. And mm -hmm. I think 
uh, to go back to something you talked about earlier, the Andrew Sullivan's of the world, the fact that you would lead off the essay with a look at neoliberal queers seems like a victory for that part of the the LGBT movement that that wants to uh, incorporate the gay movement into society and tone it down and get everybody, you know, buying nice things <laughs> and not worrying so much about where it comes from or what the, you know, what the background to it is. So can you talk about that phenomenon a little bit? Yeah. So what I was trying to do in that part of this, of this essay was really to point out a sort of second way of understanding the relationship between neoliberalism and queerness. So the one side is very much that sort of Andrew Sullivan, um, you know, we will sort of hollow out the queer movement and the radicalism of queerness by giving them these basic sort of rights and recognitions. Uh, and, you know, this is what the theorist Lisa Dugan, who another theorist who I draw on a lot and, you know, admire hugely, uh, termed homonormativity, this idea that if we sort of give people these basic privatized significantly rights, um, then they'll sort of go away and shut up and that this is part of the broader kind of neoliberalization. Um, and so for thinkers like Dugan, it's no accident that you have left neoliberalism in the form of figures like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama at the same time as you have these kind of privatized rights and recognitions that are being doled out by the state. The point that I wanted to make is that there's a second way in which queerness and neoliberalism can sort of go together, which is almost the exact opposite of this, that you have radical queer critics of things like marriage equality who, as I've already mentioned, reject the state. They're uninterested in the state. They think of the state as a kind of locus of violence. Um, and that ultimately, even if they reject neoliberalism, at the end of the day, by rejecting the state, they're actually fitting together quite well with a neoliberal agenda, which also is interested in sort of hollowing out or dismantling the state. And so really that chapter is trying to show how you have almost a, a horseshoe, right? That on the one hand, you have kind of right-leaning gays and lesbians who are very interested in aligning with a kind of left neoliberalism. But on the much more radical side, you have people who oppose them, but who nonetheless kind of play into the hands of neoliberalism by also rejecting the state and, and its power. And so how does this shape your larger interest in the queer theory of the state? So I think, like, again, the, the goal for this, or what I'm trying to do is to, to kind of square that circle or that horseshoe and think how can we take the kind of radical anti-normativity, the distrust of the state because of the violence that it has historically perpetrated against not only queer people, but all kinds of other minoritized groups. How can we take that and encapsulate it in some way that leads to a productive or positive vision of state power, right? How is it that we can then actually positively put forward, here are things that the state can do, here's a way that we can organize a state that would be sort of fundamentally anti-normative, that would be open uh, to, you know, encouraging life 
opportunities and paths, not only for the kind of normative majority, but also for outsider groups and, and sort of others. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founders level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Well, that sounds utopian. So let's move yes. on to your next chapter, <laughs> Radical Utopias. And, and and Sam, what are you trying to do here um, in this chapter? So here I'm really taking a deeper dive into those radical critics, right? And the premise here is that I'm not trying to say that they are anti-political. Because I think if you talk to any of these queer theorists who kind of reject the state, they would absolutely say that they see their work as political. They themselves, you know, maybe we're activists. And so that chapter is really about trying to say, well, okay, you reject the state, but you're political. What is your vision? What is your sort of positive vision? And so part of it is actually kind of working through other theories of the state that maybe could apply to uh, this kind of radical queer activism. And the one that I deal with the most is liberalism. Because initially, it seems like there should be a lot of sympathy between a sort of liberal, you know, theory of the state that basically says this is, the state is in fact a locus of violence. Freedom comes from limiting the state, which you know goes back to the sort of early 19th century. Uh, I mean, even the, you know, Enlightenment era thought sort of posits that the state needs limits and checks and so on in order uh, for a sort of free society to flourish. So you would initially think that there's this sort of sympathy with liberalism. In fact, though, these thinkers, these critics are vociferous in their opposition to liberalism. And fundamentally, they see it as hypocritical. They think that liberalism may have fine sort of flowery language with which to describe universal rights. But at the end of the day, it's only guaranteeing the rights for a very narrow set of already privileged individuals and everyone else is sort of being exploited. And this is where, in particular, the analysis focuses on the sort of economic side of liberalism, how it's never just the sort of rights-based liberalism, but it's paired with a sort of laissez-faire market that is then free to exploit workers, women, you know, et cetera. And so... There is this rejection of liberalism. This is a moment also, um, and I forgot to mention this earlier, another thinker who I really draw on a lot and was really informed by while writing this is Judith Schwar, who was a political theorist at Harvard in the- Cold War liberal extraordinaire. Cold War liberal extraordinaire, but also a surprising critic of liberalism. I mean, that's sort of why, you know, she's not, I don't agree with everything she writes, but I do find her interesting. Right. She, she has this sort of interesting project of trying to excavate the emotions of liberalism and figure out not only intellectually and sort of rationally how liberalism ticks, but what are the kind of 
constitutable motions of it. The affective dimensions of liberalism, as yes. I refer to it in a, in a forthcoming piece. And, and she famously is what Sam is referring to, one of her last pieces titled The Liberalism of Fear, which is kind of a reflection on Cold War liberalism, not a rejection of it, but a, a kind of a, no. a critical reflection, I would yeah, say. No, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And one of the interesting points, you know, for her, the rejection of cruelty was really the foundation of liberalism. Um, And she sees this coming out of the Enlightenment and the sort of rejection of torture, the rejection of religious wars. Yeah, I would would just add, I think, added to that is that it's like the ability to make the world. Like that is Is her, that is her like claim about what liberalism is and how it emerges from the Enlightenment is that this notion that you could actually make a world free of these things. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And one of her critiques, though, about how liberalism has evolved is that it oftentimes becomes the sort of um, project of rejecting hypocrisy. And this, I think there's a lot of overlap here with queer theory and queer activism, where there's this, because it's anti-normative, because it's interested in exposing the sort of the hypocrisy of norms, it inherently has this sort of anti-hypocritical bent to it. What Schlar says, though, is that if that becomes the foundation of your politics, it sort of curdles into a new form of cruelty, because at the end of the day, we're all hypocrites. You know, it's it, it's impossible to find a politician or an activist who is not in some sense hypocritical. And so it, it's sort of a rejection of, of being human at the end of the day. So that's sort of where I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are these queer activists doing vis-a-vis liberalism? What is their project? Is there a sort of positive project there? Um, and I think there are a lot of dead ends, which I kind of try to, to track in this chapter. One of them is this politics of, of anti-hypocrisy. Ultimately, where I land is I think that these radical uh, critics of the state, to the extent that they have a positive vision, it's a sort of communitarian, grassroots activist vision where they you know, basically think, spontaneous, um, somewhat anarchic collectives are kind of the way to get things done. The way Yeah, forward. super 70s, basically. Very, very 70s. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, and, it like smells like patchouli, that argument, you know? Yes. And, you know, they're not totally wrong, right? We can look at the 20th century and early 21st century and see successful examples of movements that have been organized in this way. But at the end of the day, what's successful for a time, right? For a it's time, like the exactly. overwhelming power of the state always destroys it. <laughs> destroys it. Or what's interesting is that oftentimes they are successful yeah. because they are successful at demanding state intervention. Right. 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 And so like, if we looked at act up, which I would argue is a, a probably like the uh, sort of archetypal example of this kind of activism, it was successful because it was demanding interventions from the state to help fight and contain HIV and AIDS. Precisely, yeah. Precisely. And so, that's a great point. Um, so that's sort of where I see there's a limited utility to this kind of critique, but it sort of reaches a point where that utility ends and it sort of falls into a kind of left anarchism or libertarianism that I, again, ultimately see as sort of unintentionally aligned with with neoliberalism. 
Yeah, which is, I think, um, something that like our generation of intellectuals has, has drawn out quite a bit um, yes. in, in general. Uh, so you fully embraced your Americanness in the next chapter titled Queer Pragmatism. So, <laughs> so what do you mean by pragmatic and how does that relate to this theory of the state? So this is really where I go back to my disciplinary roots as a historian um, and talk a little bit about, you know, I mean, German history is a fundamentally conservative field. History is already kind of a conservative field because we're interested in archives and, you know, what we what we can know empirically. So basically what this chapter is trying to do is to point out a very different strand of queer activism, which is a strand that doesn't necessarily embrace the state wholeheartedly, but understands that the state, for better or worse, has a role to play and that the success of activist movements depends on winning state recognition. And this goes back all the way to the earliest queer movements in Imperial Germany, which we talked about on earlier podcasts, um, where basically you have figures like Magnus Hirschfeld, who is this pioneering doctor, sexologist, and activist, and they're really focused on trying to get the country's sodomy law changed. And so they do sort of pioneer a kind of grassroots activism, right? They're trying to sort of get queer people to sort of recognize themselves as queer, to join various organizations, to sign petitions. But at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is convince the people in power in the parliament to repeal this law. And so there is this kind of pragmatism vis-a-vis the state where they recognize that they have to work with it. Um, I think that that has a long sort of genealogy that goes on from Imperial and Weimar Germany. Uh, Many of the gay and lesbian activist groups that predate Stonewall, I would describe as fundamentally pragmatic. If you look at the Madison Society, for instance, um, you know, it it fundamentally is looking for various forms of state recognition um, and has been critiqued, in fact, for being sort of too willing to buy into sort of you know, the heteronormative um, society that that it was also critiquing. And then even the post-Stonewall activist groups, there's sort of this flare-up of really radical activism, but then it kind of settles down into a much more, I would say, pragmatic kind of activism that is embodied by the likes of Harvey Milk, right, who becomes San Francisco City Supervisor. So Also a yeah. proud son of Woodmere, Long Island, like someone else on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> You know, and and so in that chapter, I'm trying to both trace that history and then also look at more contemporary writing um, figures like Margot Kennedy, uh, who we already mentioned, Paisley Kara. Um, oftentimes, historians or legal theorists, I think, have a much more pragmatic view of the state because, again, they're dealing with empirical evidence. They're not just sort of in the castles of theory in the sky that queer theorists oftentimes. So there, the problem that I try to diagnose is that I think even if you have a sort of pragmatic, begrudging acceptance that the state is something you have to work with, that doesn't amount to an actual theory of the state. Your sort of your theory is that it's there and we have to work with it, but you still see yourself as outside of it. There's no sort of future, there's no utopian future in which it might be possible to envision or create a state that truly sort of exists for all of its citizens. So then this naturally brings us to the final chapter, which is a queer state. 
So what would a queer state look like and how did the criticisms that you've been making and the insights you've been drawing contribute to this basically provocation? Right. It is basically a provocation. I, this is not like a draft constitution or something. So basically, I think, and I try to situate this chapter in particular, I mean, I try to situate the whole book in sort of contemporary politics, but this chapter in particular, I think there has been a slow rejection on the left of the kind of neoliberalism that figures like Bill Clinton and even Barack Obama stood for. And so I very much see this contribution as a sort of piece, as, as a sort of chunk of ice in the larger flood uh, of sort of leftist politics that I think is, or my hope is that it is sort of starting to shift the tide um, against the sort of left neoliberalism that has been so dominant in the Democratic Party for so long now. Ultimately, I think if we start understanding where queer theory falls short vis-a-vis the state, what the thinker I turn to is Walter Benjamin, who is sort of, you know, I think he's the most cited thinker in the humanities, um, figure from Weimar, Germany, who then dies while on the run from the Gestapo during World War II. And he has a critique of violence, um, gewalt, which can also be, I translate it as power to sort of make clear that that's what I'm talking about. It's oftentimes translated as violence. And basically what he argues in this piece is that there is this kind of dialectic of violence that undergirds modern society. And ultimately what he argues is that there's no way to escape that, that even if you are a sort of critic of the system, even if you are trying to change whatever system that might be, there's no escaping violence. You, too, have to engage in, in some form of violence or, or power. Um, I mean, he calls uh, a labor strike a form of violence or, or power. And so that's really what I start with. And I think that that is something that is missing from these more radical queer critiques, is there's this sort of underlying assumption that if we have the right forms of critiques, if we reject the state hard enough, then we will be free from the sort of sullying influence of power or violence. And ultimately, I think that that's not correct. And so the first step is sort of acknowledging that queer theory and queer activism is itself ultimately a sort of state-building enterprise. Even if that state looks very different, it is interested in power. So that's sort of the first step. The second step is to think about, broadly speaking, what form might a queer state take? And I think for me, it's very easy to land on democracy. Now, democracy is obviously imperfect. The version of democracy that we live with in this country is hugely flawed in so many different ways. Um, but at the end of the day, democracy is a quite radical proposition. It's something I think that people have actually forgotten, that democracy is, as a sort of modern phenomenon, is still quite young and that people, you know, literally lost their lives trying to get the right to vote, trying to get the right to select their leaders. So there's a sort of radicalness there that I think has been forgotten that I'm also trying to I sort of remind people of. Um, but I think that democracy at the end of the day is also the sort of queerest form of government that has yet arisen on earth. 
Um, because at the end of the day, democracy at its sort of idealistic best is about institutionalizing the ability for critique and the ability to sort of grow and adopt and, and change um, in response to current crises and struggles. Where I diverge from sort of more classical or liberal theories of the state is that I think queer theory points to a more communitarian basis uh, of democratic sovereignty, which is to say that because queer theory is interested in normative power, it's interested in how not only society, but also the self is constituted through interactions with other people. It basically argues that there is no such thing as the sovereign liberal self. That is a sort of ideological construct that ultimately is designed to rob us of the ability to act sort of in tandem or jointly, right? If we see ourselves as a sort of free human being whose freedom is dependent on our independence from other people and other institutions, then it really hampers our ability to work together to solve large problems. And so I think queer theory actually points the way to saying, no, that is a myth. In fact, we are communitarian beings. We are social beings. We are only ever constituted vis-a-vis other individuals and other sort of settings. Um, We are always, to some extent, outside of ourselves. And that the kind of democracy that would come from that would be a democracy that acknowledges that we are not sort of individuals in this classically liberal sense, and that we actually do have obligations to other people as well as other people have obligations to us. And that there's, that this is a joyful thing, right? These aren't sort of bonds that, that sort of weigh us down, but rather um, the sort of joyful acknowledgement that we're not alone, that we are these sort of social beings. So that's about as concrete as this book gets, right? It's not a sort of plan for a constitution, but I do hope at least that it's a different way of thinking about what democracy is and what its purpose is that does allow people who are interested in queer theory and interested in the sort of deconstruction of norms and understanding sort of violence against queer people, a way for them to start thinking productively about the state, um, as well as for, I think, progressives more generally to start thinking about, okay, how actually could we envision a state that you know, maybe is a a sort of Marxist dictatorship of the proletariat, but is a kind of progressive democracy for the 21st century. So I was going to ask you to sum up, but that you did it on your own. You're such a natural (laughs) podcaster. Uh, But is there anything else you want to leave listeners with that they should take away from the book or any final words of wisdom? Honestly, right now, the main thought on my mind is dread for this coming November. So (laughs) I'm really struggling to sort of hang on to the optimism that I think ultimately (laughs) pervades this book. Well, on that happy note, good, good. You know, yeah, you almost had to end on joy. I think it's going to be a great, great election. We've got great candidates. It's going to be awesome. It will be pretty cool. Derek and I are open for business. We'll be the foreign policy advisors to literally any candidate on any side. Uh, Dean Phillips, call us up. You know, whoever gets married. Marion Williamson. Howard Schultz. I have my money on her. Hoping he makes Robert a comeback. Robert Kennedy Jr. Oh, well, maybe not Maybe not him. But. The, the whole gang. They should just form into one like Transformers mega candidate. So, Sam, thank you so much. We almost ended on a positive note, but you brought us back to despair. Uh, we hope to have you back again soon. And everyone, thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks for having me.